Welcome to Autism Weekly, the podcast that discusses autism news, current events, and inclusion. Each week, we welcome a guest to the program to share their unique perspective and expertise as it relates to the fascinating world of autism. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. I'm the founder and president at ABS Kids. I've been in the field of autism and applied behavior analysis as a clinician and advocate for nearly two decades. This week, we welcome Adam Davis to the podcast to talk to us about the ways games can be used as a fun way to help people with autism develop social and interpersonal skills, regulate emotions, and increase mindfulness. Adam is the executive director of a nonprofit called Game to Grow. In addition to his work with Game to Grow, Adam developed the core gaming program at the Atlantic Street Center, utilizing video games to teach dialectical behavioral therapy skills. We're thrilled to learn more. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So I love to get a little bit of a background and, and get to really understand where some of these wonderful ideas stem from. And I guess the biggest question is, you know, how did Game to Grow come to be? So Game to Grow is actually, we're, we're a nonprofit based here out of Seattle. Um, we've existed as a nonprofit since about 2017, though I've been in this work and my, my co-founder of Game to Grow has been in this work since about 2011. So this all started, Adam Johns and myself met in graduate school. We were at the Antioch University here in Seattle. I was studying drama therapy. He was studying couple and family therapy. And we got sort of a, one of those grad school jobs uh, at an after school program that was designed for kids who were having trouble fitting in, having trouble making friends. And it was a Dungeons and Dragons group. Um, at the time, it wasn't really facilitated with any intention. The kids were just having an opportunity to play together, gather around, and do something that they enjoyed with some supervision. And I was a supervisor in that position. Uh, and then over time, as, as I was watching these tabletop role-playing game groups, I realized just how much of a potential there was for tabletop role-playing games to overlap with the things that Adam Johns and I were learning at Antioch, I was studying drama therapy, like I said, which is the systematic and intentional uh, application of drama games and activities for insight, growth, and change. And Dungeons and & Dragons and tabletop role-playing games like it are a perfect vessel for that kind of intentional role-play, the kinds of insight that one can gain from playing a character, uh, the, the trials and tribulations of rolling dice and discovering uh, that maybe things we that don't always go the way that we wanted them to. This is a really important uh, vessel for learning so many important life skills that we, uh, he and I at that time decided we wanted to do something more than that program was was really able to handle. So we launched a small for-profit organization for a few years to get the proof of concept ready. And then we we realized that we wanted to do more than he and I could do by ourselves. And so we launched Game to Grow as a nonprofit in 2017 with a very small uh, crowdfunding campaign, and then we got a, a foundational grant from Child's Play Charity, and now we have somewhere around 30 employees, 30 group facilitators running groups. And because we, in in the in the COVID era, we transitioned all of our services virtual, so now we actually have uh, services for participants all over the world. That's an an amazing story. And when I'm thinking about the population of autistics and um, youth with autism, is there are certain things that they 
that you see people tend to gravitate to, especially when learning social skills. I'm, I've seen Lego groups. I've seen drama troops. I've seen now gaming. What is it about gaming that allows somebody who maybe is not willing to fully explore all their personal thoughts and feelings and expose themselves to be able to do it in that environment? Well, there, there is something really magical about a shared identity and a shared culture and a shared community that has shared group norms uh, that creates its own language and shares that language and gets excited about those things. There is a, a kind of love language that comes from getting excited about the kinds of games or movies or books or interests that anyone has, especially true in the autistic community. So what we're doing is really meeting and sharing around, uh, around a circle, um, more literal pre-COVID than now, but we're gathering around in a circle and, and, and sharing our enthusiasm uh, for these kinds of shared interests. And we, uh, we talk about Dungeons and Dragons as the, the sort of shared interest. We also have a Minecraft-based uh, social skills group as well. And th those are both really relying on the kinds of passion and excitement that our participants have for these things and then leveraging what's already built into those systems to help them connect with each other, develop some collaboration skills, some self-regulation skills like you spoke to earlier. But really, so much of what we're doing is helping them connect with each other. And a lot of our participants, you know, you'd mentioned a lot of them uh, live with, with uh, autism diagnoses, but some are undiagnosed and some have different diagnosis. But the, the reality is for most of our participants is that they have struggled to fit in, uh, struggled to form communities and form friendships. And what we're oftentimes seeing is a lot of them have been, you know, sort of taught how to be friendly um, and taught the appropriate way to interact with other people. And I'm air quoting appropriate here. Um, and that they haven't actually felt the rewards of being social. They haven't felt the the kinds of intrinsic benefits of having a friend who was excited to see you, who shows up on time and, and has those kinds of, of scheduled play dates, right? So when one is coming to a, a tabletop role-playing game group, um, there is a continuation desire that's built into this into the the format of the modality, but also really built into the way that we train therapists how to run this. And so what we're seeing is a lot of people who have never had a friend or never had a support group or never had that kind of network of people who they care about, now there's a beautiful opportunity for them to practice connecting, um, practice reaching out, practice being vulnerable, practice uh, sharing to the appropriate extent and then stopping and then asking follow-up questions. There's so much built into the model that is the perfect sandbox and playground for trying on new, uh, new interaction styles with other people. And we don't, you know, we don't have a strong right or wrong approach as we're doing this. A lot of it, what we're trying to do is help young people connect with each other in their own language and in their own style and build the kind of social confidence that will help them continue to want to reach out to other people, building that capacity to connect with other people so that they can do so on their own terms. And whether whether talking to different people through this podcast or having the chance to be able to see it clinically, I've seen a lot, especially of, of young adults and teens who have gone through almost a bullying sort of period where they try to hide some of those vulnerabilities. I would imagine creating a character on a tabletop role-playing game, they're able to expose themselves without exposing themselves. Um, oh, that's, so, that's beautifully said. <laughs> 
Yeah. So how does that happen? In And maybe you can give me an example and paint the picture of these role-playing games and maybe some of the characters that people develop and how that aligns to maybe who they are or who they want to be. Absolutely. So what what, what I'll do is sort of paint the picture of what a tabletop role-playing game is in general for, for listeners who aren't as familiar with the format. Um, and it may help for me to explain what a tabletop role-playing game is not because there's there's sometimes is some confusion around based on what other people's experience is with games as well. So the first thing I'll say is that a tabletop role-playing game like Dungeons & Dragons or Critical Core, the system that Game to Grow created, uh, it is not a video game. I'll say that first. Um, historically, these were called tabletop role-playing games because they were played sitting around a table, you know, a, a four-seater table uh, are, are in that circle. Um, something else that's very different about a tabletop role-playing game is that the game is collaborative. The players aren't working against each other. They're all building on each other's ideas, um, working together towards that common goal. Another thing that makes tabletop role-playing games unique and exciting is that the point of the game is not to earn points or have some sort of win condition where you race around the board so many times or anything like that. The point of the game is to create a story. So here you have sitting around a table, creating a story collaboratively together. It's really a collaborative role-playing story game. And there is a formal set of rules and guidelines. It is a, it is a game with dice and there are rules and there's a nice, we call it crunchy. It's a nice sort of crunchy game where you can get really deep into the rule books and understand the probabilities of doing one thing instead of another thing, which is a really nice, safe, safe system in which to play and practice because it's not an open-ended sandbox. There are some expectations of certain outcomes at certain times, which is really, really uh, supportive and useful when someone is trying out a new thing. So in, in this this game, you're, you're picturing now of, of four or so people sitting around a table. Every one of those people, except for one, which I'll explain later, has a piece of paper in front of them called their character sheet. And on that character sheet is is a character that maybe they created, um, maybe they have, a, you know, are using a pre-made character sheet based on the system that they've created. But on that piece of paper is their character's name, who their character is in terms of their skills and strengths and abilities and the unique things that sometimes it's their flaws, sometimes it's the things they care about. But it is it is ideally a rich and and round narrative character on their their sheet there are numbers on there that tell them if they want to do something that requires strength they roll this dice and they add this number and that's how whether they're successful or not but every single person sitting around that table has a different character sheet with a different character and they are solely responsible for that one character and what that character does in the story but that other person sitting at the table with all of the players who are playing characters is called a game master and this is a, a a player in our case it is also a facilitator a group facilitator oftentimes we have we train therapists to be this role we train parents to be this role or teachers to be this role but the game master's job is to set up the story describing moments that the characters are in in which then the players decide how their characters overcome that obstacle and continue the story moving forward. So I'll give you an example of what this might look like. The players are all sitting around the table. They've all got their character sheets in front of them. They have dice. There's you know seven different types of dice, uh, four-sided, six-sided, eight-sided, 12-sided, 20-sided dice. And the game master describes the situation the characters are in, something like this. Your characters have all been walking, tromping through the snow. You're qu questing after this X 
on your treasure map and you so badly are ready to finally find out what is underneath that X in the treasure map. And you've been hiking and tromping and you are tired. It's been several days and you finally come to the clearing on the other side of the, this forest and you see a great big large a cavern descending hundreds and hundreds of feet down to a rushing river below and you look left and you see that this cavern extends for miles and you look to the right and you see that this cavern extends for miles and your quest is to cross this cavern but you notice that there seems to be a a, a single bridge crossing this cavern and as you get closer to it you realize that this bridge has seen better days it is swaying in the wind it looks like a rickety uh, rope bridge with a couple of wooden planks missing now, what do you do next to, to cross this bridge safely? And then the characters would look at their character sheets and figure out what their characters are good at, how skilled they are at potentially traversing this canyon to get to the other side. One player might look down and say, well, my character is uh, very dexterous. Mike, your character can cross this bridge no problem. Uh, I'll just... I'll just walk carefully across and the game master might say, okay, well, uh, roll your 20-sided dice and add that modifier right there from your character sheet and see how skilled your character is to getting across this bridge. They might roll that number and roll high enough and they cross the bridge. It's wobbling in the wind, but they make it to the other side. Another character, another player looks at their character sheet and they're playing a, a dwarven blacksmith. And a lot of the stories are set in high fantasy settings like Lord of the Rings. And this this player looks down and says, my character is a dwarven, dwarven blacksmith with short stubby legs. He is not as dexterous as that other character who just crossed the bridge. Oh, gosh, what am I going to do here? Well, I do have some rope in my inventory. Uh, I was a blacksmith. So I tell you what I'm going to do is I'm going to maybe I'll throw the rope to the other player character who's already crossed the bridge and then I'll tie it and stamp it into the ground with my amazing skills at hammering. I'll hammer this rope into the ground here and I'll fortify this bridge. And that might be a way for that that character to use their character's skills so if so uniquely relying on what they they can do. But then that third player doesn't have is not a, a blacksmith with a hammer and is not naturally dexterous. And that player might need to have their character rely on other players for help. I'm not going to be able to get the, get across this thing. Would you hold the rope on the other side? And so the other players are working together and collaborating to get all of the players across that rickety bridge. And these kinds of of challenges that the game master provides can be, you know, linear like that bridge challenge, but it could also be an open ended challenge of coming to a castle and they know that they have to get inside that castle, this castle ruled over by perhaps a, an evil and malicious king and they need to get inside that castle. Well, now they have to decide, do we go over the wall? Do we try to sneak our way past the guard in the front? Do we try to find an open window? Then the players are talking to each other about how they want their characters to overcome these obstacles. Ideally, the players are building on each other's ideas. One per one player will say, my character wants to jump over that wall. And another player says, okay, I'll give you a boost, right? That's the kind of uh, collaborative moments we're trying to encourage in this type of game. But one of the other really unique and interesting aspects of these games is that there are other characters in any good story. There's not just four characters. The rest of the story has characters in it. And the game master plays all of those characters. So the game master, when, when the heroes... Uh, you know, get past that bridge and they get to that castle, there might be a guard standing outside that castle and they decide they want to talk their way past this guard. They go up to that guard and then the game master role plays in real time 
who that guard is. What are you doing in front of my castle? You know it's quarantine right now. Everybody go out, has to go inside. Then the players have to decide how they're going to have a conversation with that with that guard. Maybe convince him that they have special badges. They're allowed to get into the castle. These kinds of things might be an interesting way for them to practice self-advocacy. They might practice some, some uh, interpersonal skills. They don't have an opportunity to practice in their daily life or in sort of a contrived role play setting. But if they if they know their job is to save the kingdom the, and, and the um, the only way to do that is to self advocate to get past this guard to get into the castle to stop the evil wizard from doing evil wizardy things, then that that motivation and wanting to try and practice and get feedback and try again, that kind of space is really useful for that that continuation desire and to compel them to continue to practice these kinds of skills. I love I love the way that that's described. And I, I I each step of the way that you are walking through that, I could imagine these are skills and deficits that all of our kids, not just those on the spectrum, but every child need to develop over time. I mean, you you hit on self-awareness, advocacy, conceptual reasoning, uh, perspective taking. I need to know what everybody else is thinking at this point. And resiliency is that not everything's going to go the right way. Now, this is all in one game. It sounds complex, and it's got to be simple enough for clinicians to be able to to use in any sort of therapeutic format. Like the clinicians have to be able to use it as a vehicle, right? So, how do you train clinicians to facilitate in the same way? Maybe not as good, but in the same <laughs> way as what you were just doing there to help each one of their patients utilize these skills. So that's an interesting, uh, interesting question there, actually, one we struggled with for a long time because games like Dungeons and Dragons are complicated. Um, and what we used to do when people would reach out to us before we had a, a, a you know, structured training program, we would say, oh, you want to be a, a therapist, a therapeutic game master. Well, I, you can't be a therapeutic game master until you know how to be a game master. So the process of becoming a game master means learning the rules running some games for friends or family or people who you don't have therapeutic outcomes associated with, doing so for six to nine months to get experience, and then come back to us, and then we'll talk to you about that. Uh, we actually, uh, Game to Grow, Adam Johns and myself, were uh, the keynote presenters at the Washington Association of Marriage and Family Therapy a couple of years ago, and we, were, we had an audience full of therapists who were excited about the stories we were sharing of, of the, the power of these kinds of games. And so many of them said, awesome, I want to do this. I, this, is, this is exactly how I can help support my, my, especially youth participants who are struggling to connect and struggling to have, I mean, imagine a world where youths want to go to therapy, right? I mean, that's part of the, the beauty of this kind of, of intervention. And the what we what we decided we needed to do was actually create something for them. So this is where uh, uh, Adam Johns and myself, we uh, connected with uh, sort of a, a beautiful sort of accident um, of of paths crossing at the right time. Uh, we connected with Virginia Spielman um, out of the Star Institute in, in Denver, Colorado, and uh, created Critical Core. We partnered with uh, in, uh, actually an ad agency out of Hong Kong to do some of our design work as a, as a pro bono uh, passion project for some of their creative team. And we built what we built was called Critical Core. Uh, we put we launched on on Kickstarter in uh, 2019. We were successfully funded in eight hours, and 
Uh, what that is is a beginner's box for therapeutic role-playing games. And what we realized as we were trying to help therapists and trying to help teachers and parents utilize tabletop role-playing games as tools is that the barrier to entry was not the youth. <laughs> the barrier to entry, the kids were ready to learn it. The barrier to entry was so many in so many ways on the therapists and on the, the teachers and the parents learning how to play a tabletop role-playing game because the, the format, the asymmetric structure of it with a game master and the, and the players is very unique. If you've only played Sorry, Life, Uno, et cetera, this game is gonna be a, a real game changer to, to use the phrase. Um, so what we built in, in Critical Core was a simplified rule set that is similar to Dungeons and Dragons or Pathfinder or any of the other big name tabletop role-playing games, but it's designed to be accessible, not just for a neurodivergent population, but also for brand new game masters. Like it's a really is um, designed and, and the, the core uh, game master's guide that comes in the kit really is a very simple instruction of, of how do you structure a narrative, how do you support participants who are struggling to engage, all of those kinds of things are, are in the, the rule set. But then also we included a facilitator's guide that talks about the, the structure we have used successfully in Game to Grow, uh, a 90-minute structure that has a, a check-in process and a checkout process and, and builds into it that sort those sort of participation structures that help the youth engage with each other and and really some of the ways we want to help our players identify with their characters to the appropriate amount to help build some of the the confidence from their character and take that with them into their real life, but also take some of their uh, challenges and put that on the character as a way to externalize and gain some insight from that character. And then the other really exciting part about the Critical Core box set are the stories we built into it. So I mentioned earlier a, a brief story of crossing a bridge and getting into a castle. Uh, because we've been doing this for so long, we have so many stories that we've built for our participants. And so we put three of them into the box set with some additional guides for game masters to create. New game masters are playing Critical Core to design their own stories, their own sort of narrative arcs and flows and how to align the in-game scenarios with those real world areas of social growth. So you, you mentioned earlier the crossing the bridge. Well, they have to think about what is my character good at? If the player you know, has experience in scouts and knows exactly how to tie a knot, but that character is a dwarven blacksmith or or you know an archer they might not know how to tie knots so there is a, a real uh in, in, important value there to say i know this thing but my character does not or my character knows this thing even though i do not that's a really important opportunity to reflect on that perspective taking in theory of mind skill so th that might be one encounter in the game to to reinforce and support that what we call core capacity but there's also plenty of opportunities in there for regulation skills that bridge is rickety. That is scary. How am I going to cross this bridge? I'm not sure if this is going to work out okay. Is a fantastic opportunity to build a regulation skills. Uh, also linear, linear sequencing of events and, and gray area thinking to recognize that just because so-and-so got across that bridge safely doesn't mean that everyone will. You know, that kind of um, uh, just because something happened before under certain circumstances doesn't mean that those exact same circumstances won't cause something else to happen later is a really important perspective to take on and carry carry around with them. But the, um, the finally the the one of the really important core capacities we built into the game is this concept of pretend play, because we are really are leveraging play, actual 
honest, authentic, social, relational play as the vehicle for so much of this. And what, what we always tell our trainees is, is if you are not playing, the, the participants aren't playing. So keeping that, that model of the game master is, is a, a player and the game master should be engaging in an in enthusiastic a relational space with those participants and talking in silly voices and being excited and being worried and, and modeling that with, with an active presence affect when the bridge is, is ricketing back and forth. Eyebrows up, leaning forward. This is us co-regulating in so many ways with our participants as well. Uh, such a such a crucial feature. I mean, it, with any therapy is that if somebody's not motivated to be a part of it and they don't feel engaged, of course, they're not going to put themselves fully into it. Now, I have I have a, and maybe this is a wish list item that doesn't exist, <laughs> but wishful thinking here. Um, is there and are there stories or are there developed material to be able to focus specifically in on enhancing skill sets or say it is perspective taking or it's self-regulation. Are there specific stories that would hit that more and enable a therapist to target behaviors more frequently? So we don't have we don't have storylines overall. So so let me let me back up just a moment and say that storylines, what we call big, big overarching campaigns, are imagine imagine it's like a season of a TV show. Because a youth isn't just coming to play for one 90-minute session. They're coming to play in a group for a 90-minute session once a week for 10 sessions. But we also have had participants that come quarter after quarter after quarter after quarter and have been with us for five-plus years also. So there's there's a real power of continuity and a relationship with the narrative there. Um, that, that that narrative component is really the the most important aspect of it, the, the relational social narrative play. But the... Um, the the way that those sort of teachable moments are built into the game is it's never done overtly. Um, it's never done in a today class we're learning about perspective taking kind of way, right? Because so many of the participants see that and then it feels like school, right? It feels like therapy. And so what we're doing is a lot of implicit social learning. And so what we'll see is in the reflective praxis at the end of what did you notice? What was challenging? What did you maybe uh, learn from this session? That's where the the connective tissue is between the in-game engagement and the and the um, the trans translation of that, for lack of a better term, into the real world and into connecting those pieces to their their lived experience. So the way that I described it earlier is every encounter in the game has those kinds of uh, connections to what we call the core capacities. Um, and there is, there are definitely moments where that encounter is specifically designed for perspective taking. There is a guard having a bad day. How do you know he's having a bad day? Because you can see it on his face. How do you interact with someone who's having a bad day, right? But the campaign itself um, has all of the opportunities for growth sort of sprinkled in amongst the entirety of the of the campaign so that you're crossing so many of those, um, you know, outcomes throughout the entirety of the experience. And you'd be surprised the kinds of way, I mean, so much of what we're doing is emergent. It, it's what shows up that day. Um, and in the way that we talk about our our structure, we we do we do have stories um, and there is a procedure to it, but there's a, so much flexibility built into the, what the game master is doing um, that the game master who is playing those characters will respond differently on that day. If someone needs kind of a social confidence boost, that 
guard who may have been designed in the story to be gruff and having a bad day and not at all interested um that game you know the game master might that day if if you know a particular player is having a rough day they need just a little social confidence boost that guard might say wow i i see you've got a really big bow and arrow you're carrying around what what tell me something you've hunted with that bow and arrow if I'm having a really bad day and I could really use a pep talk, tell me something cool you've done. I'm going to go hunting after I'm done with my shift and I would like to know something cool you have done in your life. And then that's just a, a, a time for that player to, to make up something on the spot of something. Oh, my character, uh, I, I, I've hunted, I've hunted a dragon. Oh, you've hunted a dragon? Well, that's so neat. Tell me how big the dragon was, right? That's just an enthusiastic back and forth right there. And that social confidence boosting there and the fact that they're having some imaginative pretend play in real time that the other players are ideally you know paying attention to and tracking oh i i also fought a dragon oh that's cool then they're connecting with each other in a way that is uh it's dynamic and emergent in a way that no curriculum could really be prepared for right so a lot of our training program is to help the the facilitators and game masters to respond and be in the moment and really attuned to the needs of the group and align the in-game moments sort of as they emerge with the kinds of supports that those youth needs which is very a very scaffolded and very uh developmental approach to to sort of meet our players where they are that day much less just in their larger developmental journey so you're immediately challenging me to say i need to go get <laughs> some improv skills almost immediately but outside of that, I mean, you have a set of therapists and potentially parents that would love to facilitate. How how can they contact you? Or are there other venues to be able to say, hey, you know what, I'd love to get training. I want to do this well. I want to feel competent in the way that I can adjust or mediate these scenarios to be able to adjust to what my child needs at this time. Is there trainings available? Yes, there are uh, at gametogrow.org slash training. We have three different branches of our training program. We have one for therapists, one for educators, and one for community members. And community members means parents. It means people who work at a teen center or maybe who work in a, a game store or some sort of other. Librarians will come to that one oftentimes. And that's how to be a safe and supportive game master, aligning the situations in the game to help the participants flourish socially. So it's not designed, that, that one in particular is not designed for treatment outcomes or how to take notes, those kinds of things that clinicians might need. If clinicians are interested, they should come to the, the training program specifically designed for clinicians, which will cover uh, a whole lot of, of the kinds of things that teachers and parents don't need to, to know all that much about. Um, but it's a, it's a really um, useful training because it's it's three, the, the therapist training and the teacher training are both six hours. Uh, that there's three of them for the therapist training program, three six-hour sessions. We have consultation programs to get some additional support uh, along the journey. Uh, so I would ad absolutely advocate that people go to gametogrow.org slash training to check that out. Um, there is sort of an expectation or an understanding that some um, people attending those trainings have had some, some experience with tabletop role-playing games, but it's also, uh, we don't want that to be a barrier to participate. So we also have Game Master Workshops 
for people who are coming and want to learn about how to facilitate the game. Uh, there is a, a bit of that improv skill um, in, incorporated in some of those workshops as well. That's also a gametogrow.org slash training. And then the other thing that I've mentioned that's beginner's box to therapeutically applied role-playing games is called Critical Core. And you people can find out more about that at criticalcore.org. It appears that you've looked through uh, taking away some of those barriers uh, and encouraging people to get to the point where they can use the the games and the critical core games to be able to really enhance those relationships. What sort of advice? I mean, if you have the the ears of a variety of families out there, parents, self-advocates, what is your advice to them on the value of the gaming world? to helping somebody to really build some of those interpersonal skills and social skills that are so critical for daily life. I would sort of to echo what I said earlier, I would look at sharing enthusiasm for these games as a love language. You know, the, the concept of love languages, some people like affirmations, some people like small, um, you know, gifts, some people like the way that they give and receive love is through these set love languages. Connecting over a shared enthusiasm for a game should be something in every parent's toolkit and every therapist's toolkit and every parent and every educator's toolkit, uh, especially youth who struggle to find social connection and find community. This is their love language. This is their invitation. Um, and the, the advice that I would give is to find something in that game or movie or whatever to connect with the the participant or the youth or the, the client about um what do they love about this and really try to sink into that enthusiasm for that shared thing and reconceptualizing this as uh, from i have to help my participant or or child or student talk less i have to help them talk less because they're oversharing um they're, they need to know when to stop talking while we might understand that there might be a point in life that they will need to understand that limit. Starting first with where can we find the shared enthusiasm and enjoyment for this, this thing that they love so much. And that right there is the entry point for relationships, which is going to support so many other outcomes we want for them. Before we look at the boundary there, let's look at the, let's, let's walk into their world for a little bit. Well, well said, Adam, and I, I thank you for sharing your enthusiasm with us. Um, <laughs> I can I can feel the passion, and it it looks like you've put a lot of time, energy into a product that it uh, the sky's the limit. And um, I hope people reach out to really explore the use of games um, in helping to be able to explore these social relationships, uh, both therapeutically and personally. But um, I appreciate your time today, and uh, hopefully we can get back in in touch and. And do some follow-up. I love that. I, I'd be look. I would look forward to coming back, Jeff. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly Podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.